0: Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of the show. Happy almost end of February. This month has, I felt like, totally gotten away from me. For as long as January feels, February feels like it winked and disappeared, and I got nothing done in the process. (laughs) Um, So yeah, just trying to pack it all in here in the last week. Um, Definitely feel an energy shift coming up soon uh recorded my last podcast all about sort of where I've been at, specifically related to my creative process and just really examining why I do certain things and how I do them. And um, yeah, I've just been on a very big, I would say probably Mars retrograde and Gemini exploration. Uh, and it's been good. If you want to hear more about that, I would um, tune in to the previous episode, which is a solo Episode with just me and I've, I'm still sort of in that place. I think I recorded that episode about a month ago and really took the month of February, I think to practice what I was preaching and take some time to rest and to not over pursue things and to give myself permission to pursue new projects, let's say over old ones and took a whirlwind trip to LA. I think we, we had a total of five days of driving for four days spent in LA, which no matter how I prepare, and I think this is true for so many things. I was thinking about stress a bit this morning. You know, no how no matter how much we, you know, can mentally prepare ourselves or emotionally prepare ourselves for something that is stressful, like taking a fast road trip to an incredibly busy place <laughs> compared to where you normally live, you know, these things are just stressful. Like traveling in and of itself and when i say stress i'm not necessarily saying it's bad um we need to do things sometimes that put some stress on our bodies hopefully not very often but it's not necessarily bad but it is making our bodies let's say work harder than they normally do and i feel like i've i've put a lot of responsibility on myself of like well if i just enter into this quote stressful situation with the right mindset it won't affect me. You know, like trauma is not the thing. Trauma is the way that I experience the thing. Um, and I think that's true, but I do, I do catch myself sometimes blaming myself for getting stressed out about stressful things, which is like ridiculous. Um, needless to say, I got a gnarly cold while in LA. That was my body's response to the stress, um, regardless of my mental preparations. Uh, and it's been like a week or so, um since I've had this and uh it's still there. I still sound nasally and feel snotty. Um there was no fever, it wasn't COVID, but it was definitely one of the worst colds I've had, which kind of added to my like, oh my god, I've gotten nothing done in February vibe. Um but I feel the shift of energy. Mars is moving out of its retrograde post-shadow. For those of you that don't know what that means, it's totally fine. All you need to know is that it makes total sense. If you too feel that a shift is coming, I feel the spring coming. Um, I just, yeah, I'm I'm anticipating lots of changes. Chris and I are moving into our new house in April. Lots are lots of things are changing, and I think most thankfully, I feel sort of a resurgence of inspiration. I've I felt a little lost in the shuffle over really, I feel like the past six months ever since getting back from our trip and adjusting to being in Crestone and making some pretty big um, decisions and purchases uh, here. And yeah, just really allowing myself to sink into that kind of a, a transition. But I do feel inspired. I have several different conversations that are planned. I have a potential workshop type thing that I um might do with a fellow friend and podcast guest who you all if you've been listening for a while know well. So more on that soon. Um I'm just feeling grateful for the shift and the shifts that I know are coming. Um, This conversation that you're going to hear today is with Cynthia and William. They're the co-founders of Gender Equity uh, and Reconciliation International. And their publicist, they just came out with a book and their publicist reached out to me and it sounded really interesting. The way that they were approaching gender equality work seemed very not aligned with what I would say the sort of conventional mainstream approach is these days. In other words, um rooted in compassion and love and um, understanding and curiosity and, you know, interaction with one another as opposed to silencing or canceling or excluding or blaming. Um And so <clears throat> while clearly any kind of reconciliation work, whether we're talking about gender or ecology or sexuality, I mean, it's clear that the solutions are going to be based on compassion and on togetherness and on listening and, um, and on empathy. And yet, even though that's so clear, I feel that that perspective is so lacking that when I come across it, Um, and it's very much the work that Cynthia and William are doing, I feel, you know, so excited and feel like it's so refreshing, even though it's so obvious. And, like, of course that's what we need to be doing, Um, and yet so rare. So we had a really fascinating, wide-ranging conversation that I'm really excited to bring you and uh, really excited to do some potential more work with them in the future and partner with them. It just feels so nice to finally... I can't believe I've never heard of them before or their work before. It's very much aligned with my values, and I'm assuming a lot of your values as well. So I'll let that conversation speak for itself. I will say that it, it brought up, I would say, that I've sort of had in the past six months, and I've really been thinking a lot about this um, Mars retrograde in Gemini that's been happening over the past six months. Um, I've been teaching a workshop about it with my friend uh, and uh, uh, Whitney Will, and we've done this before where we, uh, during a Venus retrograde was the last one, and then we now did Mars retrograde, Um, but really gathering a group of people and spending the length of the transit, which in the case of Mars was about six months, really spending that period of time with one another, reflecting on the archetypal themes of the transit. And so Mars represents our will, our desire, our capacity for action. And Gemini is all about different ideas and curiosity and sort of all forms of expression, whether that be language or, you know, in the case of writing or podcasting or speaking and communicating, um, all of that. So it was no surprise to me that I was focused so much over the past six months, as I described in the previous episode, around, like, feeling like I had all these things that I wanted to do and trying to figure out which one of them I should prioritize and whether doing one thing prevented me from doing all the other things, or whether, you know, focusing on one practice could actually help me improve in other practices and other domains as well. Um, But the other thing that came up that I didn't mention, uh, because it's it's an entirely, maybe archetypally similar, but logistically different topic entirely, that came up for me was around this idea of you know how we use our language and our words and our ability to communicate and how we express ourselves when we express ourselves when we don't express ourselves you know thinking about when we should or should not all of these questions and i think one theme of mars and gemini uh is undoubtedly the theme of gossip and bullying um and really just aggressive communication overall, right? So if Mars is the aggressor, Mars is the thing that, you know, doesn't have to be aggressive per se, but in many ways we need aggression, we need movement um, in order to get things done. And so when that energy is paired with um, the sign that oversees speech and language and communication, undoubtedly one of our options, one of the forks in the road, leads to aggressive communication, Um, And sometimes brave communication as well, right? Sometimes this is, at least for me, very difficult to distinguish, right? Like, um, when should we speak up? When is it appropriate? When is it actually going to be for the greater good versus when is it, you know, ego-centered or coming from like a hero complex? So this is something that I've been grappling with a lot. And I could record a whole podcast on this as well and all the different themes um which I'm not going to do I'm just recording an intro about it <laughs> um but to summarize you know I, I think one thing that I've come into contact with which has been a theme that sort of recurred throughout my life is you know this idea of bullying um I was bullied really horribly as a kid um and I think it's what has made me so um, anti-cancel culture and uh, just really knowing how it feels to, to have someone like profoundly misunderstand you or spread gossip or lies about you and how just full of sadness and helplessness it feels to not have that person be able to listen to you or feel like you're misunderstood Um, Right. I think that's what is what happens so much when we bully is that we're making these assumptions about someone else's intentions or why they are the way they are. Sometimes it's just based on absolutely nothing. But I think as we get older, um, when that when that bullying uh, exists still in our older years, the way we allow ourselves to do it is that we rationalize it. We think like, oh, well, I have a right to say this because that person hurt me or I have a right to like tell people about this because it's my story and my experience. And, um, you know, we're not doing it totally thoughtlessly. I think actually what's happening is that we're able to rationalize why we're doing it. And sometimes it's really tricky. Um, I did a little series on my Instagram stories recently about this where I really just asked the question bluntly, like, is there ever an appropriate domain for public shaming or cancel culture. Um, Is there anything or any circumstance um, where you feel that this is appropriate versus a circumstance where you don't feel it's appropriate? And that opened up a really interesting conversation. Um, And I think where I've sort of landed with it is that I really don't think there's any situation in which it, it's productive to do something like that um I won't I won't say a hundred percent. I think there are some exceptions but by and large I don't think there's an excuse for this type of behavior and I think the internet and social media and our individualistic culture and our lack of community and uh, you know our lack of um you know this this tribalization and this polarization that's just split us apart and make and made us feel like, you know it's not just that this person disagrees with me but because they disagree it means they're against me and they're a bad person all of the all of this stuff i think has made this problem a lot worse and again i think especially when we're kind of smart it's super easy to find rationalizations for our behavior and I experienced a really sort of bizarre bout of public shaming and bullying recently, um, that I won't delve into necessarily. I'll, I'll give a different, um, non-personal example. But I've, I've been kind of interested and fascinated by this world that I've never really been in, but just sort of been witnessing, uh, which is this kind of like, instagram female goddess manifestation coaching thing (laughs) um that i feel like has taken off in these really big ways and there are people you know these quote-unquote coaches i'm not really sure what it is you know it's a coaching pyramid scheme like i'm coaching you to coach other people to coach other people and charging insane amounts of money uh thousands upon thousands like you know, $20,000, $100,000 to have, you know, a month-long one-on-one coaching thing with this Instagram person. Um, And doing really kind of shady business practices, like, for example, someone signs up for a year-long program for, like, $50,000 to watch a series of Instagram or um, Facebook Lives and realizes that the program is, like, totally fluff and they're on a payment plan and they want to leave... Um, and instead of allowing these people to leave, they're not signing contracts. There's no like terms of use or service. And they say, well, if you want to leave, you actually have to pay the value of these individual Facebook Lives, these individual quote-unquote programs for their own individual value because what you got was a discount because you bought them all together. So they're basically charging people more money than the program itself to leave the program. and And that's just one thing, right? There's this whole idea of like you know, if you think you can't afford this program, it's because you have a self-limiting belief about your own value. Right. And so paying me to like, be in my energy is going to be a life-changing experience for you. And so you need to empty your entire bank account over and over again and hand it over to me, um, in order to succeed. And there's a lot of gaslighting and guilt tripping. It's really, um, you know, I think I've paid attention to it because, it can be really slippery and slimy, and there and there are these ways that these legitimate concepts of you know abundance and charging our worth and you know um, there there's there's a lot of concepts that I don't necessarily disagree with, but these things can be co opted and rationalized to excuse really fucked up business practices and behavior. Um, And I think it's always good to kind of pay attention to that stuff, right? Like pay attention to the edges where the things get blurred a little bit, Um, because it will help you stay accountable. At least it helps me stay really accountable. Um, And if we can't see clearly how easy it is to rationalize in the way that we see fit and to co-opt legitimate, helpful beliefs into something that's really unhealthy and toxic. Like if we can't figure that out, we are at risk of either doing that ourselves or being susceptible to someone else doing it. So that phrase, like, keep your enemies closer. (laughs) Um, So anyway, I've been following this for a little while now. And I then stumbled across this account that was calling it out and like all of a sudden there was this huge um upsurge of people complaining and starting reddit threads and like recording the calls the calls of these coaching programs and showing how ridiculous it was and how overpriced it was and how it was like just totally full of fluff and nothing meaningful and not what they paid for and the abusive marketing tactics and there are these patreon accounts and all these people really coming forward and 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 my first reaction to all of it was like, yeah, finally, like, this is so messed up, you know, but then it so easily goes into, okay, but we're just totally calling someone out and posting their photograph and critiquing their Instagram stories and you know, showcasing and basically calling for them to be canceled. Like this is not acceptable behavior and you need to stop. And all of these people are going to be commenting on all of your posts um in order to call you out and exposing your address and um saying that it's totally appropriate for you to be harassed because you were, you know, acting in a way that I, this group of people felt was unethical. And it was to the point where for a moment, like I found this one person who had this specific account and I really, I was going to invite them on the podcast because I was like, yeah, let's talk about this. Let's talk about all the nuanced ways that people co-opt language and these like spiritual beliefs around manifestation and abundance and um, use them in this incredibly narcissistic, egoic, you know, commodified, capitalistic, patriarchal way. But, you know, we can have that conversation without going after someone especially someone we don't even know personally. And, you know, I recognize how when I'm like worked up about something or when I feel really passionate about someone or when something, someone's hurt me or hurt a group of people or hurt someone I care about, like, of course my, the first thing is to go after them, right. To turn, (laughs) to turn their behavior on them and attack them. And, I just think we really need to be careful because it's so easy to justify that when we're feeling impassioned and when we're feeling angry. And it might be really easy to say, oh, no, that's not okay in that domain. But maybe that's just because that domain isn't triggering you in the way that this other thing is. But when it triggers you, it's cool. Like, you can just do whatever you want. And of course, in so many of these cases, and specifically this example with the coaches, I agree. I think what they're doing is totally unethical. It drives me bananas. I'm offended. I'm annoyed. I'm, you know, I feel like they give spirituality a bad name. I feel like it's, you know, desacralizing something that's sacred. It really bothers me, um, especially, especially, especially when it involves spiritual stuff, right? Like... (laughs) that's when i get really triggered about it and i have personally got gotten sucked into um the orbit of quote-unquote like spiritual leaders who turn out to not necessarily be embodied and what i mean by embodied is like walking the talk and that's made me incredibly angry and i've gotten super furious about it and in many ways rightfully so But also, what about the personal responsibility piece? Where are these people's discernment? Why on earth are you spending $60,000 that you don't have for a year-long program where you listen to some woman in Austin talk at you for 45 minutes? I mean, that's absurd. And, you know, I have compassion (laughs) and i understand but at the same time solving this is not about attacking the perpetrator it's about getting curious about why were why were you susceptible to the perpetrator you know to begin with in addition to that person changing but ultimately that's on them right like we can't get people to change we can say hey this is what i feel this is my experience we can talk to these people directly I'm not saying that exposing injustice or that speaking up about something that's not great is a bad thing, but when that takes the shape of this person is to blame for this thing, no, of course not, right? Like all these people spending all this money on spiritual coaching is not about the coach. It's about an underlying issue of how this dynamic was able to crop up to begin with and why we're so susceptible to it as a culture and how in order for it to work, it takes two to tango normally always. So I wanted to bring that up because I feel that it's extremely relevant to the conversation that you're going to hear with William and Cynthia, which is that, you know, it sounds so cliche, of course, <laughs> um, but in my mind is undeniably true. And, and the older I get, the more I recognize That anger and aggression and blame and projection and running away from our own responsibility is not the solution. And in fact, is what perpetuates the problems. And so I I just wanted to say all of this to encourage self-reflection, right? A little more self-reflection for all of us, including me. On what domains and where and in what context we feel that it's, you know, ethical and morally acceptable for us to attack someone on the internet or ghost someone or spread rumors about someone, you know, especially instead of confronting them directly, especially instead of examining our own role in that overall dynamic. So... The work that Cynthia and William are doing, I feel, is so on the right path in really every way. (laughs) You know, in the pursuit of reconciliation and equality between the genders, they are engaging both spaces of togetherness, spaces of separateness. Um, There's a cross-cultural perspective. There are people that are involved from all different generations, all different sexual orientations, all different gender identities, and bringing them all together to have honest, truthful, and compassionate conversations with one another. And again, it's like, duh, it's so simple. (laughs) And yet it's so difficult. And, you know, as you'll hear more in a bit too, right? Like all the forces are working against us. We really, really have to take this on ourselves because, like the media and politics and the way that everything is structured around us, um, provokes and really invites us into hating one another and into bullying. And so, it does take a lot of courage and a lot of strength uh, to pull ourselves out of that. But I think it's so worth it, and I I feel like. We need to be kind of shouting this from the rooftops more and more, right? Like, what is the antidote to cult cancel culture, you know, is not, pre- is not prejudice. You know, I think a lot of us who are fighting against it, especially those of us who identify as like socially liberal, who agree about the fact that we all should have, you know, equal access to happiness and, you know, pleasure and uh, life and be paid equally and all these things you know, a lot of us who get accused of being anti-cultural culture are not prejudice as we're accused of being where we're coming from a place of compassion and love. And if we're going to speak up about anything, if we're going to fight for anything, if we're going to push for anything, it should be that. So as far as when and when not to use our voice, I think that's a really key sort of guiding guidepost for us to follow. Like, Where is this coming from? And what is my goal? You know, what is the purpose here? And don't get me wrong, that's not an easy question to answer. I think it's sort of an ongoing, lifelong inquiry, examining the impetus for us to say whatever it is we say or do whatever it is we do or ask for money for whatever it is we ask for money for. Um, It's definitely a difficult question, but I think it's so important for us to focus on it as much as we can. To really ensure that our intention is good and our desire and our end goal is love and compassion. So, on that note, a couple of announcements. The first is that our book club meeting for February, we're reading Going After Cacciato, uh, which is a recommendation by Angie Hirschberger, who's a longtime listener and community member all of the books that we chose over the past five months, um, except for one of them actually was co-hosted by a former podcast guest or a friend of mine. And they helped me select the book each month. Um, and then also helped me to, um, organize and host the conversation that we have afterwards. And it's been really nice because there is a bunch of books that were chosen that I would have never selected myself. Um, but that, you know, others with this community in mind selected. And so we ended up with a ton of eclectic things to read, um, all different genres and topics. So that's been really fun. Our uh, conversation for the February book, as I mentioned, is this coming Sunday, February 26th at uh, 10 a.m. Mountain Time. If you want to participate, if you've read that book before, even if you've read just 10 pages of it, if you want to quickly download it right now, and listen to the audiobook before our conversation. It's not that difficult to read. Um, it's pretty, it's a pretty easy read. So I've been reading it quite fast. If you want to participate in that, I'll be sending out the zoom link. Um, probably maybe tomorrow, Friday-ish. Um, and so the way to sign up for that to get all the information is to go to Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S dot substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com slash book club intro, all one word, Um, and you will see all the details about how to sign up for not just uh, notifications for this book club, but for the upcoming books as well. In March, we're going to be reading uh, a book by Susan Brind Morrow called The Dawning Moon of the Mind, and that's going to be co-hosted by Jenny Kellogg, uh, which I'm really excited about. And I've also decided to extend the book club. So when I first came up with this whole five-month thing, it was because I was maybe only planning to be in Crestone for five months. And so only stable for five months and only planned five months of books. Uh, But since Chris and I just bought a house, it looks like we will be here relatively indefinitely. And I really love the book club. It's such a joy to read alongside all of you and to discuss these things with you. I feel like I'm In college, in the best way, which is really what I spent my college career doing, um, reading books and talking that, talking about them around, about, around a round table. That was a lot of arounds, around, around table. Um, and so that's what I feel like I'm really trying to cultivate and create now for the book club. So I'm going to be announcing six more months of books and the next iteration of the book club will be themed. It's actually going to coincide with the astrological new year. So, the um, sun moves into Aries on March 20th, um, and so basically uh, for each of the months, I'm going to pick a book that somehow has something to do with the archetypal nature of every sign the sun will reside in over the next six months. I would not be surprised if I extend this theme for the whole year, um, but for the moment I'm announcing six books, so that's coming out soon. All of this stuff is, can be found on Substack. That's really where all the things are, nowadays, you can sign up, you can get emailed every time I send out a podcast episode, you can comment on every single podcast episode, it's where the book club is hosted, I have a lot of writing, um, bonus content that doesn't appear on the show, but that does appear on Substack, and more things to come, and it's totally free. If you have the means to donate, um, it's five bucks a month, uh, but you get access to all the content either way. And so I um, basically asked for donations to support this project overall, kind of like public radio for those who can support, amazing for those who can't, you're basically subsidizing their capacity to um, engage with this stuff as well. So another little announcement, or two announcements that I want to make, um, I've been teaching Contact Beyond Contact classes in Crestone. I'm teaching at least four more over the next four Fridays from 4 to 6.30 if you happen to find your way to South Central Colorado, I would love to dance with you. Um, Please reach out to me for more information on that, uh, which you can do on Instagram at Anya.Kotz or AnyaKotz at gmail.com. The next thing I wanted to announce is that the Crestone Energy Fair is taking place September 16th and 17th this year. Um, The Crestone Energy Fair is awesome. It's one of my favorite things in Crestone, Colorado, uh, which is basically a big festival dedicated to alternative and environmentally um, friendly building, but also so many other things. So I'm going to be teaching dance and there's musicians and people that teach breathwork and people that teach karate. And so like movement and building and really just um, like herbalism and ethnobotany and all sorts of like ways of living healthy and sustainably um, and really like in reciprocity with the land um, and so there's this big festival over the course of a weekend. And if you go to CrestoneEnergyFair.org, you'll see all the information. You can get some insight into, um, what's offered and what's been offered in the past. If you have been thinking of maybe wanting to come visit Crestone, that is like maybe the most beautiful time. Fall is epic here. The weather is going to be beautiful. Hopefully it normally is. Um, it'll be a chance to meet lots of cool, interesting people. And if you would like to participate, um, applications are open. So if you are a teacher of any kind, um, especially if you work in the realm of natural building, but also, um, herbalism or, um, any kind of movement, if you're a musician, you can apply by May 1st, um, to be a presenter or a teacher or performer. Um so I am working to help book the talent for the energy fair and so I hope you will come. Please reach out to me if you do apply um and I can put in a good word. Uh and I would love to see you there. I'd love to meet more of you. It's a really great opportunity to come and if you want to come that weekend I'd recommend looking at Airbnbs um sooner rather than later because it can get pretty popular around here then. Um so I think that's all I have to announce for now. Lots more coming soon. You're definitely going to see a little uptick in, um, in output from me taking a long needed, much needed break, um, but feeling my usual spark of manic excitement and inspiration. So time to follow that again. And really glad that I feel like this podcast with Cynthia and William is kind of kicking that off. Um, it was so lovely to talk to them and I felt so relieved and, um, inspired, um, by, by the conversation. So I feel like it was a really good jumping off point for more aligned conversations and projects moving forward. Uh, I am going to play you in today with a song called Above All Else Be Kind by Ajimal. Really lovely song. I've been playing this in my dance classes recently. Um, it's just really resonating with me and I, uh, that it was very clearly related to my intro and this conversation that you're about to hear so enjoy the song and enjoy the conversation and as always I will catch you on the other end
1: There is a wind A spark. There is a song with sky was still if I was struggling for breath would clasp me close would bear my breath? There is a dark, the light can't kill Within the blinding fear it fills If I were huddling for warm you clean my clothes, you'd share This is not difficult or radical. This is fundamental, this is pivotal, this is the most important. There is a home good will not be silent. If you were promised the children unfair, who'd sit you down to share?
0: Cynthia and William. And, um, I have to say, I get, I get a lot of proposals from people to like of people to have on my podcast. And so infrequently are they anywhere aligned with my podcast. So it's always a joy when someone reaches out to me and it's actually really aligned. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited to have this conversation with both of you, um, about many different topics, but I guess we could start. You're both the founders of the Gender and Equity and Reconciliation International organization, I guess, institute, something like that. Um And I would love, as I mentioned before we started recording, I was reading both of your bios and was just really sort of taken by both of your your journeys and your background. Um, and so maybe we could kind of start there. Why don't we talk a little bit about both of you and um, what was each of your journey toward founding this organization and um, how does your background kind of intersect with the work that you're doing now?
2: Okay. Thank you, Anya. It's a great joy and privilege to be here with you today.
3: Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, we're, um, we're, we're feeling quite fortunate to be with you as well. The <laughs> podcast, we're just blown away by, you know, all the guests you've had and the topics you cover. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: yeah. So, um, yeah. So background. Um, well, this project began uh, 30 years ago and I am a climate scientist by profession. So I, I was a physicist and then I worked for 25 years on strategies for baiting global warming, primarily mm-hmm. by um, promoting sustainable energy systems, uh, renewable energy and energy uh, efficiency. And I worked in that field for many years. And in the context of that work, back in the late 80s and early 90s, there was quite a bit of sexual harassment going down and essentially Mm -hmm. meat violations taking place within our professional networks. And I was aware of this because I had done some extensive clinical work. I trained with a psychiatrist named Stanislav Groff. I worked um, in clinical psychotherapy as an adjunct person with two clinical, clinical psychologists in Atlanta for six years. They were a lesbian couple. Mm-hmm. Most of their practice was people who had been sexually abused. A lot of them were LGB. At that time, we didn't have so much tea involved. Yeah. But um, I it was just such a major eye-opener to see the shattering that happens to people in the face of sexual abuse and and violation, Um, and then also to see the degree of suffering that um, lesbian and gay people were suffering in a heteronormative society. So I, I was just very blessed to have all that waking up. But then what happened was I began to see, because I was attuned to it, I began to see some of the signs and symptoms within our professional networks And so and there was whisperings around. So um, a a small group of us called a meeting and said, we need to address this. We have this profound irony that we are here to heal our relationship with the natural environment. That's what we're all about. We were environmental scientists and activists and lawyers. And yet we have. So we're going to try to heal the human, the natural ecology. But our human ecology has this toxic wound in the midst of it that no one can talk about. Mm. Uh I think there's a contradiction there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically that's how we got started. And first couple of workshops that we organized, we really didn't know much, but we didn't need to. It was a group of colleagues. We knew there was a problem. We were addressing it, but the power of what we unleashed just kind of blew up the meeting. And it was very intense Uh as we gave voice we gave a platform for people to have voice. Mm-hmm. And that was just so, um, so powerful. And so then what happened was about half the facilitators said, we're going to close Pandora's box back up because that's too volatile. And we have a, we have an earth to save and we don't have time for this. <laughs> yeah. And then the rest of us said, no, actually this is part of it, folks. This is central. Yeah. And so we began then working with these issues and finding skillful ways to work with them. And it emerged over time. In those first programs, we called them gender and ecology. Mm. And the byline was, are there parallels between exploitation of the earth and exploitation of the feminine? Mm. And it was mostly couched in those terms because there's actually very profound parallels there. Of and so that then... Evolved, And what happened was after three or four years, we began to get pretty good ways of working with these issues. We quickly found out that just talking through everything is not enough. So we needed powerful experiential modalities. We worked with breath work. We worked with psychodrama. We worked with counsel process and a lot of movement and so that we're really exploring the issues and doing a level of healing work in community Mm -hmm. around these issues and the power of what emerged was so inspiring and then just to finish my little intro here in the mid-90s we heard about of course what uh, Desmond Tutu was doing in South Africa and I was so inspired by that
4: Mm -hmm.
2: and was thinking That's already what we were doing a version of in our little way of doing deep truth telling around gender. And so I realized we need a gender truth and reconciliation process. And so that's when we decided to call it gender reconciliation. Then later we changed it to gender equity and reconciliation. And then what happened was it just grew from there. You know, we never intended to take it beyond the mainstream environmental community. Yeah. But what happened was others started hearing about the work, particularly clergy and psychotherapists and progressive academics. And so they started inviting us to come and present elsewhere. And that was when we had to kind of put this together into some kind of program. And that's what happened and began to grow then in the late 90s from there. Mm -hmm. So that's how it got started from my side. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so, um, I came to the work 23 years ago and, um, I was introduced to the work by my mother who had come five, well, she had come and she came home after her first workshop and she's, and it was called gender and ecology there. And my mom was a psychologist and, um, she came back and said to myself and my brother and my sister-in-law, um, I want to gift you by sending you to this work. And for everything I screwed up in your life, this work will heal you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I had a really great mom. I got to tell you, yeah. <laughs> she got- she would say, we need to do the gender work as family reunions, you know, and then we'd heal all these issues. So, um, my brother and sister-in-law went right away. It took me five years to get to a workshop for various reasons. Just things came up. It wasn't right timing. When I went, um, I, I just loved it. And that was in December of 2020. And then one month after that, um, I was sexually propositioned by my boss. And I was in the health and wellness field and I had, a um, you know, a middle management position in Indianapolis in the States. And uh, my boss was probably 30, 20, 30 years my senior. He was the co-founder of the company. He was the chairman of the board and he was well, uh, world renowned in the health and wellness field. Mm-hmm. And I had studied about him in school and I wanted to work with them. And it was at a business dinner, and he said, Cynthia, I've enjoyed getting to know you av- over these last few months, and now it's time to take our relationship to a deeper, more intimate sexual level. Uh-huh. I said no, and he didn't hear my no. He just kept pushing. I got pushed out of that company. I brought it to the attention of the HR director with as much compassion as I could Right. and said, this is wrong. Let's do something. Let's, you know. And, um, and the, the company just turned on me. They hired six attorneys. I had to hire an attorney and I got pushed out. And when I did, I was, I was very disillusioned. Um, I, I didn't like men. I didn't know how to be around men. I didn't know how to dress, how to be in my body. Um, and it took a lot, lot of healing to come to, but I, Interestingly, I had just done this gender equity and reconciliation workshop a month right. before and um and I called will up and the other facilitators, and I said, "You know everything that happened in the workshop is now happening in my life i need I need some guidance and um I ended up uh going to work for this organization. Um, which I, when I, when we say we're co-founders, the, the organization has kind of been reborn many times or a mm-hmm. few times. And so in this iteration of it, um, I'm definitely a co-founder of this particular phase of the work. So that gives you a little, I'll just say the other thing is I have two kids who are millennials. Uh, they're in their thirties and, um, my son is, um, has been through the training. So my mother's, uh, vision of a gender family, healed family is good. And his wife is, um, one of, our coordinator for our Latin America program. Mm-hmm. And then my daughter is, um, very attuned with everything that we're doing, even though she's not directly
0: involved with the work. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's, that's a great story. I appreciate it. Um, I, I would love to kind of speak, like, speak about really what this means, gender reconciliation, um, in the book, uh, that you just came out with. Um, it's, it's noted this gender divide as the original wound to which all other traumas can be traced. Um, and I would love if you could expand a little bit upon what you mean by that and what is that original, um, what is that original wound as you see it?
2: Well, let let me just say, we want to be careful about being too simplistic. Um, We do think that this is a a core wound in the human family, and there are um, historical analyses. For example, the research of Goethe Lerner, who uh, wrote uh, several books like The Creation of Patriarchy and The Rise of Feminist Consciousness and the history of black women in white America. So she's she was very, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, she really developed a history of women. She said, there is no history of women. Women have been so profoundly erased from humanity's history. And she documents in her second book, it's amazing, how across the centuries when women would rise up and really be effective and start something, as soon as they died, it would be quelled and forgotten and erased. And so women were having to start over and over and over again, whereas men were always supported to build on the shoulders of their predecessors, you know? And so they could, they, so anyway, that was a difference that she noted, but where she traced it back all the way to tribal societies in really pre civilization. And basically the dynamic that happened was that the wars were largely fought by men and the women stayed at home and nurtured, and did the cooking and all the agricultural pieces. And so this so-called patriarchy began as an agreement between men and women. Right. It was a, it was a mutually agreed division of labor that made sense. What then happened was it became solidified and the, the, but the real kind of dark side of it happened in victories of one tribe over another. Cause what would happen was, When one tribe was victorious over the other, they would kill all the men. They had to kill them. They didn't take prisoners. They couldn't mess with that. They didn't even know how to deal with it. They had no way to house prisoners. So they kill all the men. And then they have all these women and children. What do they do with them? So they enslaved them, basically. Mm -hmm. They were the vanquished women and children of the defeated tribe. And so they would bring them back into their own community and make them slaves. And make the women basically available to the men, essentially for exploitation. Uh, and so you had this very primitive form of slavery and exploitation that began with the enslavement of women. And mm-hmm. according to her, slavery began initially with the enslavement of the women and children of vanquished tribal tribes in tribal warfare. Mm. And that was the beginning of slavery. And all of the, quote, advantages of slavery were discovered accidentally, in a sense. They realized, oh, wow, we can take advantage of these people. We can do anything we want. And they have no no voice and and no authority. And that was also the origin of veiling laws, where you had to be able to tell the difference between, quote, your own women and the slave women. Mm -hmm. And so the way to do it was to require your own women to cover themselves and place Veils over their faces and mm-hmm. then women who were unveiled were fair game out in society for rape or exploitation or whatever.
4: Mm-hmm. And
2: those veiling laws were very strict. If a woman who's supposed to be veiled is caught without it or a woman who's not supposed to have it has one, you know, lashings with tar and, you know, all of those horrible kinds of cruel punishments were mm-hmm. all part of talking. I forget the exact dates, but. Three thousand, two, three thousand, four thousand years ago, when these kinds of measures were set in place.
0: Yeah. That's
2: why. Sorry, go ahead. In one sense, that's why we say this is at the root of, of so many other forms of oppression, of domination, systems of domination and oppression of part of humanity by another part of humanity. And according to that analysis, and I think there are others, there's, you know, Jules Cashford and Uh, and Bering have a book, The Myth of the Goddess. There's a number of recognitions that the feminine aspect of divinity was repressed in the third and second millennium BC. So that by the time of about a thousand BC, when they began to write the, the Bible and the jewish bible that was already in place and so the bible was written that patriarchy was absorbed into the bible and the the banishment of the feminine deities was already been done and now it was being sort of canonized in scripture
0: right yeah i've also done a lot of research into like gender and prehistory and i think what you said is key though that there were for a time and i think this was more specific to our hunter gather ancestors and then shifted quite a bit with the advent of agriculture and personal property, which is, I think, where this shift really occurred. Um, But that there was this equality and agreement, right? And I think this idea that the, you know, each gender had a role to play and mutually accepted that and bought into it. And um, that there was a purpose in that sense, right? Like this is my role. Um, And then I think things got, Really screwed up. I mean, we'll talk about this. I think, of course, for both genders, it got really screwed up. Um, but certainly, yeah, I would agree that, um, if, you know, quote unquote feminine forms of power that I think these women in hunter gatherer tribes were often engaged in and, and those forms of power that were being honored, um, stopped being valuable. <laughs> um, there was no room for like softness or rest or intuition or, you know, gathering. Like we need to go out and, you know, kill and cultivate and, um, yeah, so I just, I wanted to, I think that is really interesting in talking about what the reconciliation is, right? Like, what, what, what was that like to kind of have, um, the genders being able to exist in peace, you know? Um, so. Yeah,
2: anyway. I mean, I think it's a beautiful question. And I think there are some of the early matrilineal societies and others that were evidently societies of considerable gender peace you know mm-hmm. the work of Gimbutas which um Rianne Eisler sort of wrote about in The Chalice and the Blade one thing yep. you said is very important which i meant to mention and you're spot on the whole idea of property and ownership was key to this and so that um and as Gerda Lerner documents that women's reproductive capacities and sexuality became commodities And it became something that could be owned and bought and sold. And so then you had the origins of prostitution and you had also the origins of sort of the nuclear family where men wanted to know who their children were so that they know whom to give their inheritance to. And because of that was the demand for virgins and all of those factors that came in. Right. So it was all in service. It was all sort of fueled by this whole invention of private property and ownership and then the commercialism that emerged from that. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cynthia, do you have anything to add that you want to add to that? Well, I'm,
3: I'm just aware of, um, how it relates to now. Mm. And I think many, many of us, the three of us here and also your listeners, you could wonder you know i we can pinpoint things in our own life because definitely this is still part of it but what i'd like to bring forward is a story from one of our uh, facilitators who also um has a part in the book so i'll just um share this part of the book because it relates to the the you know exactly what you and will are speaking to and also um objectification Mm -hmm. pornography, all of these things, media images that are poured into us on a daily basis. So um, this is a story, I'm not using her um, actual name, but uh, it's a story from the book, and it's one of our facilitators now. And at the age of 27, she writes that, you know, she had, she felt like gender equality had happened. She's from uh, the UK area, uh, Europe area. So she's felt very progressive in her thinking, but she thought, you know, gender equality, gender issues. Yeah, they're out there, but they're not my issue. And that she thought of women's empowerment and, but if she wasn't concerned with it, really, she, she was pretty blind to most of this stuff. And and she had, she was in a relationship, had a boyfriend and at some point there a major shift happened in their relationship and she started um just she decided to ask him about pornography and she asked you know if he watched it and if so how much and she really didn't expect his answer and his answer was yes he did of course I do you know he laughed a little bit and he said um I don't know how to explain it but you know, that's just what happens for me. And she says in her sharing that at that moment, it was a shock, absolute shock in her life because she didn't expect the answer, but also that something inwardly in her began to divide. She she really wanted to explore this more and understand more, um, but she also was just filled with a horror and, and grief and trying to make sense of it. Um she And she she realized that while he was there watching, I mean, they're in relationships, so they're having sex, they're having intimate time, but she now realizes there's other women involved in his life. Women he doesn't know who he's watching, who he's masturbating over. But when he masturbates and watches them, um, he's just seeing them as body parts, that he doesn't really know them. And so... She started, you know, she thought she was pretty progressive and not conservative or anything like this. But she starts feeling like, oh, my gosh, I'm 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 really having trouble with this. So she she um, leaves that conversation. She goes home and and she just feels I mean, she just. Has a visceral response to it of, of wanting to throw up and, you know, just, um, just horrified by it all. Um, and, um, so she has a housemate who's a man and she tells him and he goes, Oh, yeah, it's quite common. And he show, then he shows her a picture on his laptop of a naked woman. And uh, he's pretty, he's kind of empathetic to her, but he also is, like, yeah, this is just part of life. And as she's explaining this to Will and me, when we first met her, she went through a, one of our workshops, oh, probably 15 years or so ago. Yeah. Um, she she was just devastated. She, she couldn't be around men. She didn't, you know, she just didn't know. She even came to us and said, is it possible to even be in relationship with a man who hasn't, isn't involved or engaged in pornography. And, and that's a really important question because it's so pervasive now. And we said, yes, it is possible. And it may not, you know, it may be few and far between, but it is possible. And so she just, during this time went into a deep, deep, dark depression about things. And, and she just wanted to understand more. And so she actually stayed in the relationship and she decided to go into it more and actually, por- uh, pornograph, uh, pornify herself in a way in the relationship. You know, she just kind of became an object and she realized in the process too, that in her sexual relationships with her boyfriend and other, other partners during her life that she actually wasn't aware of her own pleasure. Mm. She wasn't aware of her own sense of what brings joy and pleasure to her sexually, but it was all about what they wanted, all about kind of even without even realizing objectifying and sexualizing herself. And so um, she eventually... Did leave this, this relationship and, but it was an ongoing pain for quite some time for her deep dark depression and even her women friends and other friends of different gender identities would say, You're frigid. You just need to get with the program, you know, which was also deeply depressing that there was no conversation about it being different. And and one thing she really realized with it all and in her way of saying it is that just walking around, I, I guess right after her relation, leaving the relationship with her boyfriend or after that first conversation, actually, she said she walked into a train station going home, back home, and she saw all these magazines with women's uh, bodies on them. And she realized that it was like being in a meat market. And that women, she realized that most women and girls are Objectified in the ways of body parts. It didn't really matter who you were or the soul of your being. It was really the way the media images are being portraying us as women, um, or, or the porn industry in particular is portraying us is as body parts without knowing who we really are at a deeper level. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll just finish by saying, two things. One is that she's come a long way and she really did find healing within the the gender pro our Jerry program, because the women embraced her and listened to her. And those who identify as men did, they listened. And she found out that not all men are participating in porn, nor are all women or nor are all people of gender identities and expressions that it is a part of the world and it's a much much deeper conversation around sexuality healthy sexuality and it's not to say in our program by any means that there's not eroticism there's not erotic art there's not places where bringing in you know some pornography or romantic you know romance novels and things like that aren't a part that can, you know, enhance a sexual relationship, but there's so much out there that's violating and uh, demoralizing and degrading to, um, women that that's the part that this, this particular woman had the trouble with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that story up. Actually, it was one that I, um, read when I was looking through the book. And I think really what struck me with that story, and maybe this can be a segue into talk about your work in general is, you know, what, okay, so what do we do now? Like, what do we do with this information? And I I think just the fact that little tidbit, even that she stayed in the relationship and got curious about it, right. Instead of necessarily, you know, she, she had all these horrible thoughts about men and what masculinity was and like all these assumptions about, you know um, how they thought of women and, and, Uh, and then, you know, instead of saying, well, screw men, you know, I never want to talk to a man again and I want to attack them and, you know, go into hiding. And, um, you know, she, she got curious. And, uh, I think in the end of that story as well, she said that, you know, she spoke to a lot of men and understood a lot more of where they were coming from. And I think what's, what strikes me about your work, which, you know, on the one hand should be on the one hand, it's so obvious, right, that in order to generate equality and to reconcile, that we can't be pointing fingers at one another, right? Like we're all victims of the same system. Um, and I think, unfortunately, although that seems quite obvious, that that's been lost a lot um, because people are so angry and, you know, rightfully in many cases and so lost on both on every on, uh, you know, at every point on the gender spectrum, Man, woman, non-binary, trans, right? Um, we've all been hurt by this. And so, you know, especially in this, in this climate, as it's heated up and a lot of identitarian movements and cancel culture, you know, maybe you could speak a little bit about how your program maybe like alchemizes some of that anger and, um, you know, instead of pointing fingers at people, um really allows people to to communicate <laughs> um face to face
3: that's that's a beautiful question and um I, we often uh share a, a quote from the reverend dr martin luther king who said injustice and corruption will never transform by keeping them hidden but only by bringing them out into the light with the power of love So you know we we have community agreements in our program and um, accountability. And while speaking truth and having our voice heard um, is so important, but it also can become a weapon, and it can can bring more harm if we're not mindful about what truths we're sharing. And this, so we we share with um, the intention of creating safety, of creating healing. We share without shame or blame. It doesn't mean we don't go into really difficult conversations and hard truths. So we don't shy away from that. And part of the alchemy is going through the fire, sitting (laughs) in the fire, and knowing that by going through that together, we will come out the other side. And then a very important part of our work is as we do that and hold each other in that place of deep compassion, loving kindness, really wanting to know each other at a deeper level, Um, we know we can't stay there forever. And we have to come up. So at the end of everything we do, every program, um, we, we have honoring. We consecrate the work we've done. We honor ourselves for showing up and speaking truth. We honor each other for, um, you know, honor and celebrate each other for what's been shared mm-hmm. and knowing that we've only begun because it's thousands of years of work we're doing here right yeah. um, but we that's an important piece because often um in society and in programs we're really pretty good about sh- often sharing what's on our minds and our hearts and our opinions um but we don't do the honoring piece right and so and with the me too movement which has been so important <clears throat> essential in our world to bring those truths out um and for me what what was missing is the other voices in that that didn't get voice, yeah. and then also the honoring of what's what was shared in the truth spoken and the truth's not uh, still silent, you know,
0: yeah, yeah, I always say like, anger is a bridge, not a parking lot, you know, I think <laughs> It's really important to move through that. And, you know, in my life and in the collective, I think we need to get angry to kind of catapult ourselves out of whatever the thing is. Um, but I do feel saddened by the extent to which we kind of stay there. And I think it is for lack of, for lack of honoring, for lack of compassion. Um, so, and, and maybe this is an opportunity to kind of speak about another confusing topic. <laughs> um, which it seems like you have been able to handle really well and intelligently, which, you know, is this idea that we can all be different and still equal, right? We don't all have to be the same. We don't all have to like the same things or desire the same things or experience sexuality or gender the same way. Um, we can all have right, different different roles that we personally, intentionally, and consciously want to take up in the world and have those roles be, quote, okay. equal to someone else, even if they don't necessarily look identical. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think there's this confusion at the moment where I think there's a lot of outcrying for spaces that honor, you know, identity groups. So like women are craving spaces with each other and men are craving spaces with each other. And I think that's valid, um, simultaneous to the need to bring people together and have people um, communicate, but but not either or, right? Like that, it involves both. Does that make sense? Is that something that you have thought about in this work?
3: Totally, totally.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> all the time. Yeah, and and I feel very fortunate um, that our our training team is an uh, international training team uh, that. Spans the spectrum of gender, race, culture, religious, diverse, right. age. Um, so that brings the, the ability to do more of what you're speaking about. Yeah. There's such a need being whole and coming in and, and, and at the same time, there's an important, you spoke about of having the separate Separate time too, to feel fully safe, fully held and able to bring your voice bef- out before and speak what you need before feeling like you have to be in those, um, those communities or those circles with everybody there where mm-hmm. sometimes someone gets lost or ignored or, you know, invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, so we put a lot of attention there. Um, we have of three different program areas. One is the Me Too to We Together that's open to anyone. And in that program, though, we do separate. It is a binary program. We separate into identified groups as male or female, Um, but it's open to anyone. The second group is LGBTQ that is also open to anyone identifying in that way um, and allies, most of the time, sometimes the LGBTQ group wants to just be in their own space and not have the allies there. Yeah. And then we have a BIPOC group, Black Indigenous people, a color group that is, um, you know, doesn't have light-skinned white people in it, so that they can do their work together mm-hmm. in community. Um, and then other times we all come together. And so it's an ebb and flow that is necessary, I think in particular at this time, yeah. um, that it's easy to say, let we need to all be together and let's find unity and we need to do this. Let's drive this in, we gotta do it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very um uh assertive or aggressive way to do it rather than really listening to what is needed in the moment from each person in each group. Mm-hmm. Say something.
2: Okay. Well, <clears throat> just to add a couple of things, um, separation into those different groups of identity is important in order for people to really work through whatever might be present there with those who identify the way they do. Uh, it really helps people to get clear, to feel supported. But then it's very important to come into the full community where we hear one another. That's a big part of our work, is to yeah. give each of those groups a space where they can speak their truth without being interrupted, where they can bring it forth not only in its conceptual but in its emotional uh, kind of tenor and intensity.
1: Yeah.
2: And because basically the truth is that this work proceeds by two forces of truth and love. We need to create spaces for deep truth-telling, and we need to meet those truths with compassion and love. And when we can do that, it's unbelievable what can be transformed. And what you said, the term you used, I, I really like it, alchemizing our anger. Because anger is raw, passionate energy. And anger is that passion poorly expressed, but... Skillful activism is that passion skillfully expressed. So one of the first principles, we have 12 principles of spiritual Mm -hmm. activism, which we developed, which I don't think are in this book. But the first principle is transformation of your motivation for your social justice activism from anger and outrage to compassion and love. Because it's natural in the face of injustice to come with anger. Of course we're angry. That's what motivates us. We should be angry and we should be outraged. But if you move directly into action from that place, usually you create a heck of a mess. And you also are coming from a a likely kind of amplification of your ego. So what we need to do is we need to transmute that anger. We need to work with it internally. And so that's a part of what we do. And a part of what happens in our work is we have ways of working with anger and intensive emotions like the holotropic breathwork that we use, mm-hmm. or some of the psychic drama processes. We got an email twenty-four years later from a woman who was in our second workshop ever, who said, I have never forgotten that and that has served me so well because it taught me how to transform rage into compassion. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is missing in a lot of the contemporary dialogue because it's so easy to project onto others and feel. And you might even be correct that they have a blind spot. And so you go out and you're going to settle that blind spot with them. But one can create more injury in the name of healing by doing that. And so what we need to do is transmute that anger and come together in skillful community. But it doesn't mean that we all have to be nice. We can create the spaces skillful expression of the outrage and the anger and that has been so valuable in our work
3: yeah Yeah. and my i'll just add that everything in our work's an invitation so no one's forced into anything Um, and also that we lean in rather than call out that you know if someone comes to our program and wants to be totally silent that is their participation in the work um, and 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 that's really important. The other thing I want to say is that our our facilitators range anywhere from 18 years old on up. Um, and so that having those different voices and different experiences and different um perspectives is really key. So I think it's important to say that because often I think for younger people in particular, it can be laid on the whole generation of younger people whatever the younger age is yeah. as being the cancel culture the call out culture and it's just not true mm-hmm. we have so many young people in our group that in our community that aren't into that right yeah. um,
0: what yeah. so my whole podcast is about basically That's right, exactly. We're not all That's like beautiful. that yeah, right, I mean exactly. it, it is it does exist I mean I think it it's important to recognize it's its existence as well and its popularity but yeah certainly not everybody and like you said it's not just a my gener, you know a younger generation thing I mean the older generations have adopted um it quite a bit. Uh it's yeah very popular.
3: <laughs> so and so shifting that narrative is really important as well. The other thing I'll just say is that as as most people that come through the work realize that the gender issues, the the, the oppression um is happening to all of us as you said rightly so in the beginning. And and someone pointed out in one of our programs they were amazed. It was a man who said they were amazed that it was 20 year olds, 30 year olds, 40 year olds, 50, 60, 70 year olds, all the same kind of stories. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't gone away we know that from the me too movement but you know it hasn't gone away and it's not just between women and men it is and there's a level of work that has to be done there that's also important in the separating into groups because while the binary gets a bad rap in some ways in my opinion um yeah. it it um it also is so necessary because uh, truthfully a lot of men or heterosexual women and men identified would not, they might be sympathetic of LGBTQ. They might be fully sympathetic and supportive, but they'll think that's not my issue in my relationship. And we need male identified people in this work to do their healing or nothing will transform. So we've got to get those folks in the room to be with us, to start hearing and listening and sharing their experience. And it's been trained out of boys and men to even share or even realize their gender, you know? Um, So even the word gender doesn't relate to a lot of men and boys. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that's a really important point. I mean, I speak about masculinity quite a bit on my podcast and my dad is gay. Um, so I grew up with, and we're very close. And so I think I grew up with a very unique understanding of what a man was and what masculinity was. And I, you know, was able to be modeled this person who was both compassionate and emotional and sensitive and kind, but also, you know, incredibly courageous. And, um, at some point, you know, really decided he needed to, uh, not be in a, you know, heterosexual marriage and live his truth and not pass shame onto his children. And, and so I've had this incredible compassion toward men. And I think as a woman in this time and in this culture, that's extremely rare. um And so I've always, you know, felt like I was, uh I felt like a, a while I understood, you know, the grave injustices that have been, um you know, leveled against women and the lack of equality and all of these things it was also so clear to me how, you know, men were being damaged by this as well. Um, Whether that was by the culture or just by a culture that didn't, you know, understand them. Um, I think men and women misunderstand each other in pretty equal measure. <laughs> um So, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know if you have anything to add to that about, you know, it seems like your work kind of started around this injustice toward women, and then maybe kind of grew into this more overarching idea that, um the gender divide in general is affecting everyone um in different ways but in legitimate ones.
2: That that's exactly right, Anya. I, I really appreciate how you're framing this, because it's very true that men and women really misunderstand each other in equal measure. And we have decades of data of experience of exactly that. What yeah. we constantly hear from women, for example, when they come into our work, they discover the magnitude of suffering that men go through. They think, and understandably, men have all the advantages, they have all the power, they don't have the problem, we have the problem. (laughs) They're not wrong. Women do have a problem. But they, they misperceive that men have it all made. And when they hear the truth of men's experience, and the amount to which they are shamed and humili- humiliated by this whole training system. And basically how they are, as bell hooks said, they're forced to mutilate a part of them, their humanity. They have to self-mutilate themselves to even fit in. And if they don't do it, their peers will do it for them ruthlessly.
1: Yeah.
2: So men go through a, a, a tremendous amount of pain in the patriarchal socialization the traditional socialization Uh, women don't realize that until they have a space where men can really feel safe to really speak those truths. That's incredible. That's one side of it. Then what we hear from men, they say, I had no idea what women go through. I knew intellectually. Yeah. You know, you read the papers. I know the statistics of rape and sexual abuse. I had no idea. It's every day. It's every moment. You know, just stepping out into the street uh, is a threat And, and just that constant challenge that women live with routinely that men are awakened to in our work. And one thing that happens for men in our work, and I just love this because I just see the potential. There's a lot of blaming of all of the social injustice on men and patriarchy, and it's appropriate in that sense because these systems of domination are real. But it's not the actual man walking in the street's fault. He may be part of it because he was unwittingly drawn into it. But what we have found consistently across all the cultures we've worked in, we've worked on six continents over 30 years, the vast majority of men want nothing more than a closer, more authentic relationship with other people, uh, with women in particular, and what they discover in our work is that the greatest male privilege is not any of the advantages that are afforded to men in this kind of patriarchal society. The greatest male privilege is to actively participate in deconstructing that unjust system and actually support and engage collaboratively collaboratively and creatively with women and And that same healing process also happens between heterosexuals and LGBTQ people. If we can create a space where their truths can be told, we have a new program uh, that's happening that's been going for the last few years on healing between straight-identified and queer-identified people uh, that's incredibly powerful. So the human spirit is stronger than all of these divisions. Truly, and we need to just create a space where that spirit can come forth, allow those expressions to come forth and to recognize that every single human being is a precious gift to life and has a unique kind of contribution and medicine to give to this whole healing process. And we need to create a space where we allow all those voices and then magic happens.
3: Yeah. I'm wondering if maybe you'd speak a bit about the early days when, uh, HIV, AIDS was killing so many gay men and what, what we did. Or yeah, we
2: did. I mean, well, yeah, back when the HIV crisis was really at its peak and we were doing these prototype works uh, programs and then we started doing them with, uh, gay and heterosexual men. And then we brought in uh, lesbian and heterosexual women. So we were doing, at that time, like I say, there wasn't much transgender talk, but yeah. there was a lot of LGB, um, pain and repression and just flat out ignorance. I mean, I was raised that way. We were all raised to regard people who were you know, gay or queer as just, you know, pathological. So all of that had to be worked through. But the incredible power of bringing men and women together who identified as uh, lesbian and gay with heterosexuals back in the mid to late 90s and the magnitude of pain that the gay men's community were going through as so many of their members were dying of AIDS. And we had some who were dying of AIDS in the programs. Mm-hmm. And we the level of truth telling and healing and awakening that happened. And it was the same process with heterosexuals realizing I had no idea. How much these people are suffering, how much they're sincere they are. I had all this stupid, you know, inculcation that they're a bunch of perverts and recognizing their beauty of their humanity. And this happened both directions. Right. So I think part of what we mostly need is more skillful modalities for deep empathic embrace of one another and deep and true listening and allowing for skillful expression of the emotions and channeling them properly through through methods that we have available but aren't being applied and i think what happens in the political discourse is it just becomes quickly a shouting match and it devolves into a polarization and god knows we have so much polarization. To me, polarization is good. We just need more skillful ways of working with it Mm. so that we can use it as a transmutational force, as an alchemical force that will take us through a process. And one thing we've learned over the years is to trust that alchemical process. We've hit some very rough spots, I can guarantee you, at times in our work, but we've gotten through them and come through the other side into an incredible place of of harmony and, and kind of communion soul to soul.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's lovely. I wonder too, if you, there's an undoubted, an undoubtable spiritual and, you know, religious quote unquote component to your work. Um, And I wonder if that is, <laughs> and that that's a big part of my life. Um, And I wonder if that piece is maybe what's often missing from the, you know, mainstream political discourse. We're not, you know, that's not the goal, Um, our sort of shared humanity or love and compassion. Um, And so I think a lot of that gets kind of lost. And um, I would love to hear how you weave. I mean, your book speaks about sacred sexuality. You speak about religion. You're very sort of forthright about these topics. And, um, you know, personally, I think they're imperative <laughs> to doing most work in the world. Not that we all have to, of course, believe in the same things, but um, to kind of have this spiritual mindset. And, um, I'm curious how you've weaved that through this work and whether you think that it's a, you know, key integral component to allowing you to keep this idea of like love and compassion, um, you know, front and center.
3: It's actually one of the key principles of our work. Mm. Um, so everything you just said is spot on. Um, it basically that, uh, coming from the principle that, um, it's essential to have a spiritual dimension or aspect of the work to, for complete healing. And that comes by many different ways and, and perspectives in our training of facilitators. Everyone needs some kind of daily contemplative practice. Now that doesn't necessarily mean, mean sitting in silence on the cushion. It could be dance. It could be walking in the woods. It could be, you know, a deeply uh, theological kind of uh, tradition that you're coming from with prayer and um, and connection that way. Um So it's broadly defined, but some reflective quality, which in the political discourse, I think there's a lot <laughs> spouted out there about. What the Bible says or what the, you know, Quran says or what the, um, uh, Dhammapada says or whatever, but it's not, um, it's not in the heart. I remember, uh, just to paraphrase what His Holiness the Dalai Lama said about what we most need now, right now is, um, to put away our PowerPoint presentations. And to sit together in the silence and to deeply deepen into our practices, you know, mm-hmm. and in that, if we're doing that alone, then we also, I think, have a problem. And that's part of our another principle of our work is we need to be in community so that we have that accountability with one another, that holding that support. And so as we go in personally to whatever practice it is we have, we do that together in community and deepen, um, go more deeply into the practice, and then come out with more reflective ways of speaking and being and caring for each other. Yeah. So I'll stop there. Will, do you want to share Well, just to say,
2: I, I I just so love hearing what you're saying, Anya, because I think you your heart is in the right place. You've got you've identified something really crucial. And the spiritual dimension of this is foundational because we need to be really effective in the world. We need to have that process of spiritual transformation that takes place, that alchemizes our own anger and turns turns it into skillful power and activism. I mean, that's foundational. Martin Luther King has a beautiful way of describing it. He said, for... Um, social change or social justice he said there's four steps the first is you document the injustice you gather the evidence and you show and you you're outraged this horrible thing is happening shouldn't be happening it's out of integrity you gather that evidence second you take it and you present it to the powers that are responsible for the injustice you basically confront them you do it lovingly but you confront them third and this is where it's key Third step, he said, is what he called, quote, purification, because he's speaking in Christian terms. Mm-hmm. I would broaden it to call call that do your inner personal spiritual work. And then fourth step, assuming that the powers that be don't just fix things, which they usually don't, then he mm-hmm. says, then you move into direct action. Now, what happens in so many social justice movements is that people skip that third step, they skip the spiritual transformation of transforming the anger into compassionate, skillful action. And so they rush out into direct action filled with rage. And it gets projected onto the other side who then meet rage with rage. And once, if one comes from that place of arrogance, it only it amplifies the arrogance of the other side. And then you've got major conflict. And that, I think, can be avoided not always, but often if we do our own personal work, our personal transformational work, and then we come out from a place of spiritual power. We still stand in our truth. We still absolutely insist on what's right, but we're doing it from a completely different kind of motivation. Yeah. And we're really trying to empathically connect with the other side, see the truth in their perspective, meet them, find the common ground, find where we have common ground, because there's almost always some common ground and begin to build out from there. So I, I what you're saying, I think is so, so essential. The spiritual dimension of this is what actually enables skillful engagement with these issues. And, you know, that was fundamental for Gandhi, for Martin Luther King, for the, for many of these leaders that we look to. You don't, you can't just copy their methods and expect the work. You have right. to also do the level of inner spiritual work that they did. In order to become an instrument, and as Thomas Merton said, who was another activist, he wrote that beautiful letter to a young activist, which I recommend you can Google it, Thomas Merton, letter to a young activist. But what he says there is that you are at high risk of being motivated by your ego and going out and basically creating more, you know, conflict. And what you need to do is to allow yourself to be used by God as an instrument of love. And he said, the more that you are able to do that, which requires doing a certain level of spiritual work, you will find that your activism is much more powerful and that you are much more able to handle the inevitable setbacks. But you are basically, he said, all the good you will do is by, will happen only by allowing yourself to be used by God's love as an instrument of that love. And it doesn't matter whether you think theistically or non-theistically. If you want to right. think in Buddhism, you're used by the, the truth and compassion of the Dharmakaya as an instrument of that Dharmakaya. That is the spiritual process where you basically are working as an instrument of a higher wisdom. If you don't get to that place, your activism and your is very likely to collapse into kind of a personal outrage and that polarization
0: yeah 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 and I and I think the communal piece is such a big part of this too like I've often thought that maybe part of the draw actually into these kind of cancel culture type identitarian spaces are coming from this lack of (laughs) community and this like utter loneliness and individualistic life that we're you know forced to live where we have no one to you know relate with about these injustices about our anger about our grief um and so i think you know providing this communal space for people to engage with each other around love and compassion um is accomplishing the same thing right it's getting them to the community at least without a lot of the hostility and the further division that i think um the lack of focus on you know togetherness and community can can bring
2: You have just, you've got it. I I really think what you're saying is so much what needs to be heard now. Martin Luther King said it very beautifully at one point. He, um, as you know, he was following Gandhi's principles of uh, nonviolent activism and basically applying love in the marketplace and in the political place as a way of healing, a very profound strategy, you know, but what he said was, when he came across this book by Reinhold Niebuhr, a famous book written in the 30s, I think it was called Moral Man, Immoral Society. And it was an absolutely brilliant account of the nature of evil in the human collective and how it can capture a whole group or community of people and cause them to do things as a herd that no one of the individuals in there would ever do on their own because it's too heinous. But when they're in that collective outrage as a group, they could just, you know, perpetrate unspeakable evils on others. And it's not really ever quite intended by any one of the individuals, but it happens in that collective. And so in this book, very brilliant and accurate analysis of evil in human societies, but Niebuhr ended up on a very pessimistic note, basically saying this is part of human nature and we ain't going to get out of it. And it really threw Martin Luther King for a loop, and he grappled with that for a long time. This is all in his essay called My Pilgrimage to Nonviolence. Until he had a major epiphany, he realized Niebuhr had overlooked something fundamental. He overlooked the power of love to do the same thing in a group of people. And the way that Martin Luther King put it so beautiful, he said, if we do not balance our pessimism about human nature with an optimism about our divine nature, then we overlook the cure of grace. Mm -hmm. The cure of grace is the power of love to work in society through human social justice movements. And when they're profoundly rooted in love, something completely different can happen.
3: Yeah.
2: And so that is what King realized. And then he essentially said that Niebuhr overlooked that. And that's why he aligned himself with Gandhi and basically said, we're going to work with that power, mm. that power of truth and love, which, as Gandhi said, confers a matchless power on those who apply it. Yeah. So I think that's what we need. It's it's not like these different positions don't have their validity and the identitarian communities and the feelings they're having are all legitimate. We need a more skillful way of working with those energies and validating them and then doing our own personal work internally. And then we can come into a place of much more skillful processing of that raw energy. And I think we also have to recognize there are forces that are encouraging the unskillful application of that. There are, for example, there was a meeting in the Trump community that was back in 2017, you can Google this somewhere, where they were basically saying we need to promote the tension between the feminist community and the transgender community, because if we get them fighting each other, because we hate them both, basically, right. get them fighting each other, let them tear each other down, and they put money into this and energy into this. Yeah, job that's well so, done. I, so mean, <laughs> this is, uh, I
3: mean, colonialism, yeah.
2: right? Important to look for, because sometimes people are used as unwitting instruments of another darker agenda, and they don't even realize it.
3: Yeah. You know? I, I, I'd like to just add in here and inj- interject that, um, Will and I and our whole community are very fortunate to have a circle of spiritual leaders who um hold us and work with us and support us in different ways spiritual elders and mm. elders and so when I talk about that accountability it is in the community but it's also held by Spiritual elders, um, and I'll just name them: Jetsun Matinsen Palmo, who is the highest ordained Western nun in the Tibetan tradition, and uh, Father Thomas Keating, who is the founder of contemplative of uh, centering prayer and the contemplative outreach and contemplative outreach, the interfaith um, uh, dialogues, and. Um, Sister Lucy Kurian, who's an Indian, uh, woman who has a project, major project in, uh, Pune, India and throughout India now, um, rescuing, uh, destitute and oppressed women, uh, and children and now men too, and trans, um, mm-hmm. people across India. And then Swami Ambikananda, who is the head of traditional yoga in, um, Reading UK so those are a few of the spiritual elders that hold us and if we you know if we get out of line they're there to tell us (laughs) which I think we all need we need the support but we also need that accountability at multiple levels yeah
0: right yeah I I think you know I really appreciate obviously like your work is this sort of conglomeration of, of so many different things, right? People of all different ages, people of all different genders, people of all different, you know, spiritual belief systems. Um, and I think something else that I really appreciate and would love for you to kind of speak about and why it became important to you is the fact that, um, that Jerry approaches things from a cross-cultural perspective. <laughs> um, I studied gender and sexuality in college and so much of it was about, the cross-cultural perspective right how can we possibly understand or try to understand what is you know innate versus uh social construction um if we don't get examples of other you know ways of doing things and other ways of being um so i I'd love to hear about that prioritization as well and what kind of led you there and um what role that's played in in being able to really you know, see how we're similar cross culturally, but also how things are viewed very differently, right? What's taboo or acceptable, or you know, what might feel in America to be, you know, a thing of the past, like doesn't resonate that that in that sense, and for someone in another culture or country, um, yeah, I'd love to talk about that a bit.
2: That's beautiful. Well, just to touch on a few things. I mean, the cross-cultural training has been just incredibly rich. You know, I mean, one thing that we've learned uh working in Africa, as one of our African facilitators said, you know, you Westerners, you have your watches and we have time.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so true. There was a way in which they relate to time that is so different. And we are always with our schedules and our this and our that and tightening everything and holding it in a very kind of linear, sequential way. And they had a whole different relationship to time. They do in India as well. That's a difference right there. And that recognizes a kind of. Quality of spiritual poignancy to each moment of time that's pregnant with meaning. And it also has to do with the unfolding of time in its own way and the unfolding of the alchemy of our human associations. So that was a whole learning for us just working in other cultures of letting go of our Western conditioning that we don't even realize how we are conditioned. We think we're so progressive. I remember yeah. one of our colleagues. Um, Helena norberg hodge when she went to Ladakh for many years, and she witnessed the westernization of this remote region of India. And she said the two most devastating impacts were things that even the most progressive, conscious activist westerns wouldn't even see. One was the loss of time, Mm
4: -hmm. the
2: loss of time. Over that 30 years, people used to have a lot of time, and they used to do what they called work for three or four hours a day. The rest of the day, they spent time in personal building of relationships and preparing for their festivals and celebrations. All of that was destroyed by the incoming of advanced Western culture. And now everybody's clamoring after their jobs and everything's been structured into eight-hour workday. So that was the first major loss is they lost their time in this so-called advancement from Western civilization. The second thing they lost which most people would just not even see, like she said, was the stratification of relationships by age. Mm -hmm. That prior to the West arriving, everybody in, in that society had personal direct connections and friendships with people of every other age group, from the little kids to the elders. And when Western civilization came, suddenly all the kids are cordoned off, stuck in schools. All the elders are shipped off into some, you know, elderly living homes, and all the middle-aged people are all working together, Uh the teenagers are all stuck in some kind of adolescent, you know, jail sort of feeling, cordoned off, yeah. you know, all tied up in knots with the Western repression of sexuality that came along. I mean, it's like... And we don't even see that, how stratified our our whole culture is by age. So we miss that natural cascading flow of wisdom down through the older generations into the younger ones. And that vitality and creativity and spontaneity of the younger ones moving vertically. Those whole vertical flows within the human community were all cut off by the Western civilization. And the same thing happens in the body. Those vertical flows of energy that all of the tantric and Taoist and traditional understandings of sexuality are cut off and we are cerebralized, stuck in our heads. There is in the Tibetan and Taoist traditions this understanding of the essence of the connection from uh, along the spine, from the genital area, up through the different chakras into the head, and that there are these sequential puberties. It's not just the sexual puberty that happens, but the process of puberty goes up the spine at these higher awakenings of consciousness. And there's this whole verticality of energy flow that's supposed to happen in the human body, which has been frozen and cut off in many, many people, but particularly in the West where we overemphasize the importance of the intellectual conceptualization and we lose connection with the rest of our living being, including our sexual being. So there is so much that the West has assumed its superiority over other ways of living. And that has profoundly impoverished us in ways we're not often even aware of. I remember the great, brilliant Catholic priest, Father Bede Griffiths, who went to India and was majorly impacted by the Indian tradition and was a major interfaith. But he was 80 when he had a stroke. And in the midst of that stroke, he was awakened to the feminine. And he was awakened to sexuality that pure power and beauty of sexuality and the feminine. And he said to his great credit, this has been robbed of me. I have repressed the feminine side of myself and the sexual side of myself for 84 years and didn't even realize it. Well, this is what happened to him through the Catholic socialization of even one of the most conscious priests you could imagine.
0: Right.
2: So the Western twisting of sexuality and profound repression has resulted in, on the one level, a kind of free-for-all, exploitative dimension, and then a very profoundly repressive other dimension. And we don't even realize how tied in knots we are. We think we're liberated. But as Christine Emba writes in that book beautifully, she says, we're liberated and we're miserable. <laughs> <laughs> That's the title yeah. of one- That so many people are miserable. It's part of what this woman that we were talking about, this young woman who encountered pornography. And basically one thing she said, she was taught that a woman's freedom is to basically be sexually available to men. That's what it's all about. But it made her miserable. And it's not that we don't break the taboos of the past, but we have to learn skillfully how to really live into the wisdom of the expression of these energies skillfully internally and in our relationships. And we can do that. I think it's possible. I'm an internal optimist. I think that (laughs) there is such a potential for a liberating breakthrough in these dimensions. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Well, I think if anyone's going to figure it out, I think you guys are at the top of my list. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I, for some reason this reminded me. I, I recently we have a book club that we do for my podcast, and we recently read um, Carl Jung's Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And he, in a oh, section, of Africa, yeah, um, in a section of the book, he was speaking about traveling to Africa, and he was writing in the book about like how impossible it would be to even sort of explain what he was trying to explain because he it would even at that point, even in the early 1900s, it was like taboo and. He said there was this, you know, I arrived in these villages where sort of like what you were talking about, you know, and what we know about hunter-gatherer tribes, a lot of them, that there was this kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, separate but equal. That's a terrible thing to say. But, you know, there were these roles and right. these domains that men and women existed in and both felt incredibly uh secure and grounded and purposeful, right, and found meaning in those roles. Um, Of course, that can be... um Used improperly, right roles and telling people what to do. Um, but in this case, what he saw was was the opposite. It w- was this balance and this equality and this, you know, reciprocity between the genders. And um, and he expressed this kind of sadness that he had around the fact that he didn't feel like women had the opportunity to really sink into that in any kind of way in Western culture and that we might see that, right? We might see these kind of gendered spaces as a thing of the past. Um, and he was saying how taboo it was for him to say, well, maybe there's a part of this that's actually meaningful and that we could kind of try to cultivate or get back to where everyone feels like they have a rightful, meaningful place in the world. Um, you know, and in this day and age, that can be intentional and we have choice and we've made a lot of inroads. Um, but yeah, yeah, I just thought that was a, a really interesting, beautiful way to kind of see the complexity of all of this and, um, you know, why really seeing things from, you know, the cross-cultural perspective, but you brought up the age thing as well, I think is super fascinating. And there's so much learning that can be done, you know, going in all directions and learning that needs to be done, I would say as well. (laughs) I yeah. just love
2: hearing about the book, about reading that book. I mean, that's such a profound book. And Jung is really one of the great masters in the Western tradition of which we don't have enough, particularly around in the wisdom of consciousness. And so I just, I, I just love hearing about what you're doing. <laughs> it's very inspiring yeah. to hear. And, yeah, uh, I well, think I'm it's very learning.
0: aligned. I, I really like I said Very it was is. um just yeah. really it was like refreshing that oh I'm not the only one that's talking about all of these things all the time.
3: Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> I mean it's it's more and more like I mean I started my podcast right following really the Me Too movement and Trump's election and I was just so dismayed because I considered myself a, a extremely liberal, you know, progressive person but kept not being really able to find my voice in in the mess of the you know the polarized media and Figured if I didn't hear what, you know, I wanted to hear from someone else that maybe that meant I was supposed to, you know, start talking about it. And hopefully by picking up a microphone, I would just attract others into my orbit that, that felt similarly. Um, but it's, it's still interesting how, how difficult that can be sometimes. Um, and so I am really grateful when I do find people that are, you know, have similar values and doing similar work.
2: I just want to say one thing, because when I was around you, Ray, and I had a major crisis of faith because I became a whistleblower. I found myself immersed in a corrupt scientific project that was promoting nuclear power and using science to basically manipulate mm. the data. So I won't go into all really that story. But at that time I was in this major crunch. It's like, because how can I, what can I, little me, I was just a little peon in this whole organization. What can I really do about it? Yeah. And I read an essay by, uh I was just reading, you know, I was desperate, really. And I was reading, uh, Thoreau and Emerson and I read an essay on by Emerson called self-reliance. And he said something at one point that I think is, that what you just said reminds me of. He said, when you know that you have a truth to speak, you must speak it. And if you fail to speak it, even if it's difficult, you will then one day in shame listen to your truth spoken through the mouth of another.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: because someone else will have the courage that you didn't have, and you will see how you could have helped that truth to come out much earlier had you had the courage to speak it. And then he talks about the whole point of really learning to trust that inner voice. Of course, you've got to sort it out from ego, ambition, and all that. But when you connect and you realize you have something to say, it's important to say it. So bless you for doing this. You spoke it because... Doesn't matter whether how many resonate, if anyone resonates, it's worth doing. Yeah. And you know, that's kind of what we did with the cherry work that when we started this. I remember people saying to me back in the 90s, what are you doing? What a waste of time. <laughs> Robert Bly, the feminist movement already took care of that. And Robert Bly already took up the care of the men's movement. And and it, the men's and women's thing is done, finished. It's like, yeah, really tell me. Yeah.
0: I know. Let's also well, like let's go was, 30 years into the futures. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it also
3: speaks to the blindness and yeah. dare I say arrogance that can be of the West or maybe right. the United States in particular, because we weren't invited, um, to our own country for several years to come do the work. We were invited many mm. other places, South Africa, India. And they, and, you know, South Africa has gender desks in every office, kind of. They get it, um, in a sense. And only in the last, I'd say 12 years have we really been back, invited back into the United States, which is interesting. Um, and, um, because here we thought, or at least maybe in white, um, upper communities thought we had done their work. Yeah. As Will was saying, you know Robert Bly and the feminist movement and everything, which were good, which yeah. were great and necessary. <laughs> but right. but was it was—it's not enough. That there's always more to do. Um, what I want to say here is—I uh, mean, I just think we are so aligned, and um, I, it would be fabulous to partner, or, or or I just want whether it's a partner you know, or not. Just invite you and your community into the work. And maybe yeah. that would look a some, somewhat of a way where your community came and we worked together. I don't know, but it's just so beautiful to talk with you and feel the heart connection, if you will, and, uh, and to dive a little deeper into this would be fabulous. Yeah. So yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree. I want to make sure I give you guys the opportunity to, um, just talk about where people can find you and the work and where people can order this book if they're interested. Um, and then I also ask everyone who I have on my podcast, um, if each of you could recommend a book, um, that you read in your life that was, you know, particularly profound or, or provoked some sort of transformation. It can be about this topic or something totally different. Um, often those are the books we choose to read for the book club. Um, and the audience really appreciates them. So,
3: yeah, we recommend our book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's good. <laughs> I like that.
0: <laughs> I and do too.
3: Guest <laughs> people come in. Guest authors come in for it yeah. um, around the world. Yeah. Um. So, where you can find more about our work is on our website, um, grworld dot org. Um, we're on social media: Facebook, uh, Twitter, um, Instagram. Um, so, uh, what else? Let's see. We invite everyone and, and, you know, we have a sliding scale. We have, we generous scholarships. So wherever you're on that level, you know, don't hesitate. We have a facilitator training come up, which is also a deeper immersion into, uh, even if you didn't want to be a facilitator, it's a deeper immersion into the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, um, so yeah, those are ways you can engage. Um and we welcome everyone, right? So, what's your favorite book? <laughs>
0: we not I'm favorite, with
3: that <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm,
2: I'm sitting with that question, and um, I mean, the first book that came to mind is one that I think is very valuable. I don't it's just the first one that came to mind and yep. it's uh one of the books by krishna Murthy. and uh it's called think on these things it's it's basically an exploration of different themes mm. a kind of a summary of his work
1: awesome.
2: um the other book that comes to mind is uh not maybe as well known as some of his other writings but is a book uh, by uh rev dr martin luther king called strength to love mm. That's a really readable book, and he's really speaking about the essence of what we've been talking about. It takes strength to come from a loving place and to transmute the outrage and the anger and and the intensity of recognizing injustice in the world, which is a legitimate initial response. But how are we going to transform that so that we can then take action that's rooted in love? And that's what that book is about. And I think that's one of the most important kind of transformational motivations that we need now.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um another um, hang on one second. Uh, another book that I would say is um Jetson Matinson Palmo's book was very important to me, Cave in the Snow. And um so that's one I'd recommend. And then um Do you
2: want to just say a couple of words about it? It's about her spiritual journey. It is about
3: her spiritual journey. And as an activist and I personally and as a spiritual activist for me, in the world, there's a part of me that could see myself going and retreating in a cave, right? Yeah, of
1: course. <laughs> Which she did.
3: Which she did. Yeah. And so it was nice to read that. And I also realized, not this lifetime, Cynthia. You know, this is where you're supposed to be out there in the world. Um, I think most any of Bell Hook's books are great and beautiful to read. Um, anything that can give that spiritual foundation for your activism or your life, you know, whether you're out on the streets or you're just wanting more meaning and purpose in your own personal life, mm-hmm. then any of these books would be great. So
0: okay. yeah. Well, thank you so much again. This was this was great. I really enjoyed chatting with you both.
3: Well, thank you so much. It was such a joy to be with you. Yeah.
2: Very much so, Anya. Thank you. We really uh, appreciate what you're doing and the approach you're taking. We do feel a lot of resonance. And yeah, it's been just a real joy to speak with you. I There were several moments in the interview where what you said was like so yeah. perfectly resonant with what I feel needs
3: mm. to be said more. And a breath Pl- of air. breath of fresh <laughs> air.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ditto, for sure. Hello there. Me again. Thank you for listening to that conversation. I very much recommend checking out Cynthia and William's work. I would not be surprised if um, we find some way to partner in more ways in the future. I feel so grateful to have come across their project and what they're doing. I feel like it kind of, you know, brings together so many different elements um, that for me have sort of been separated from one another, right? From gender and sexuality to, you know, somatic practices to um, working together in community to the prioritization of like love and compassion and communication. I just feel so aligned and, um, something that I feel like I need to follow. So hopefully more of that soon. I hope some of you will get involved as well. Uh, again, if you would like to, um, apply to be a teacher or a presenter or, um, a performer at the Crestone Energy Fair, it's happening on September 16th and 17th and applications to apply, um, can be found at CrestoneEnergyFair.org. You'll see it right up top, and the deadline to apply is May 1st. Um, And if you don't have anything to offer in the way of teaching or presenting, you can, of course, also just attend, um, which will be really fun. And so much to learn. I, um, last year, learned so much at the Energy Fair that Chris and I are going to be implementing at our house. So if you are looking to build or just meet like-minded people, it's a really cool place to be. Uh, contact me on contact classes are happening in Crestone the next four Fridays if you want to come dance. And again, all things can be found on Substack, com Sign up for free, join our community, participate in our book club, read some of the, you know, supplementary pieces of writing that I offer there that don't ever make it to the podcast. Thank you so much to everyone who has listened today, who listens to this podcast in general, who has been with me On this journey, whether that's for a day or a week or many years, so much looking forward to continuing the journey and building this new inspiring future alongside you. And I am going to play you out today with a song called um, Meet Me There by Nick Mulvey. There's been a lot of Nick Mulvey on the podcast recently, but I'm into it. I'm a big fan. And this song is based on a poem um, by Rumi called A Great Wagon which I've loved for a while. Uh, so I'm going to read you a little section of it and then play you out with a song and catch you next time. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense.
4: da 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 After all the people picking, people picking, people apart, my love. After all the dealing, the hooking, and reeling, alone from the start. Oh, there's a feel? Beyond this and wrong me there Woman you're living Loving you're leading me on Living I'm alive Sweet woman keep loving me on Cause they wake up every morning With the craving in their hands And so they pretend it's a game like the only place the truth could ever live was up in shy, cold, wild Lane. Oh, does it feel? Meet me there. Please come along. Tie back your head It takes me so long to say, but I need you to know. Darling, you show by leaving me so The only way to hold on is keep letting go. Oh, There's a feel.